ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Uncertainty. Doubt. The nature of our times? So why do fish need ladders? And how come some require fish hotels? It's a very strange world. And why does a population in Sydney Harbour, of all places, have males get pregnant and deliver offspring? And then, is landscape really the major maker of global warming, or the Wuhan lab the source of COVID? What's right? What's wrong? Tell us. The Science Show, and soon Professor Tim Palmer in Oxford on the primacy of doubt, how it's a good thing in research, and how uncertainty can be a basis for creativity. Hello, Robin Williams, and I'm sure you're chocker with bad news, so let's take off with good news. And a PhD student from the University of Technology in Sydney, meet Mitchell Brennan. What happened last Monday when you went down in the harbour to have a look? So I was monitoring our captive bred seahorses that we released in July of this year, and we released 384 seahorses into Chowder Bay in Mossman. Every week up until this point, I've been out there scuba diving and monitoring these seahorses, checking how they're doing in the wild and seeing if they're surviving. This Monday, I managed to recapture 65, and this is in a standardised 90-minute dive. So really positive signs. We know that they're out there and thriving in the wild. This is now three months post-release, and most excitingly, we're starting to see significant reproduction. So on Monday, just gone, I actually managed to see 15 of our captive-bred seahorses now out in the wild that were actually pregnant. So really positive and really hopeful that this will have a positive impact on the wild population as a whole. Does this mean their little bellies were bulging and they're male bellies, aren't they? Yeah, that's exactly right. So it's the males that give birth to the young. So we were able to see the 15 seahorses pregnant out in the wild through the inflation of their pouch, which indicates that they are pregnant. How small are they? The seahorses that we released were a minimum of five centimetres at the time of release. The species that we're working on, the white seahorse, grows up to 16 centimetres at their total length. Most of our seahorses that we release would probably be around eight to nine centimetres at this point in time. So you can actually see them? Yeah, you can see them. The babies, on the other hand, are very teeny tiny, so less than a centimetre when they're born. So they're a lot tougher to find. How long have they been in Sydney Harbour, these various species? Quite a long time now. There's estimates of seahorses existing as they are for about 25 million years, so a long, long time. And then in that period of time, they've made their way over to Australia and settled here. So you have two species of seahorses that we commonly see, the white seahorse and also the potbelly seahorse found here. Where do they live? In seagrass or what? Yeah, so they'll use habitat. It's an absolute necessity for them. They are not very good swimmers, so they use habitat holding onto it with their prehensile tail. Typically, this would be seagrasses, soft corals, sponges. And in the harbour, we actually see them utilising swimming nets and pylons as well. Swimming nets, really? Yeah, exactly. So in Chowder Bay, for example, the swimming net was our main release point. And... As the swimming net fouls up or gets bioaccumulation of marine fouling, it provides the seahorses with food as well. So little crustaceans will crawl on it, amphipods and copepods, but it also allows the seahorses to camouflage so they can change their colours to adapt to what the habitat is. Is there a way of putting more of these artefacts around so that you 
increase of habitat availability for the seahorses? There is. It's one of the key focuses of our conservation efforts for the species. So we install what we call seahorse hotels. So they're an artificial habitat. Essentially, they're a one-by-one-metre metal cage, and the metal cage goes into the ocean and is placed onto sand flats where the habitat has been lost or degraded, so where seagrass used to be, for example. And these seahorse hotels, similar to the swimming nets, as I just said, they'll get this biofouling, and that brings along the necessary food for the seahorses, but also enables them to camouflage or protect themselves from predators as well. What do people do around Sydney Harbour for preserving the seagrasses? Because they're not only valuable for all the sea creatures and so on, but as I've said about 17 or is it 25 times on the science show, they really absorb gigantic amounts of CO2. Yeah, that's exactly right. They're super important. And unfortunately, they've been declining for quite a long time now. So we are transitioning towards trying to preserve them and restore seagrasses. So we actually have a collaborative project with the Operation Posidonia, which is a group from UNSW, where we are co-restoring seahorses and their endangered habitat. Last week, actually, we installed 20 new seahorse hotels, some of these alongside existing Posidonia Australis patches and some of these alongside bare sand where we're going to restore the Posidonia and hoping that we can combine these two approaches and restore both the habitat and the seahorse at the same time. When you see other seahorses or even sea dragons, do you note them as well or do you restrict yourself to the white ones? No, we will note them definitely. So the sea dragons and our species of seahorse don't overlap in terms of their environment too much. The sea dragons, particularly around Sydney, have found it a relatively deeper environment. They utilise different habitat. So sea dragons are typically below 10, 11 metres, but the seahorses that I'm looking at, whilst they're found up to 18 metres of depth, typically they're in the shallower environments at up to 10 metres. So not too much overlap, but yeah, we're definitely monitoring Cynathids, which is the family name for seahorses, sea dragons and pipefish. We're monitoring them throughout the harbour as well. So on my surveys where I'm counting the seahorses that I see, particularly the captive red ones, I'm also recording the adult seahorses that I see, so the wild seahorses, but then also noting the pipefish as well. Aren't we lucky having these species just down the road? It's really, really incredible. They're so unique, especially in the marine environment. They're actually a group of fish. Most people overlook that, that seahorses and sea dragons are fish. They're just highly adapted and have these highly modified bodies. But we're super fortunate to be able to see them. So sea dragons, there's three species and all of them are endemic to Australia. And then the white seahorse, the species of seahorse I primarily work on, is also endemic to Australia. So only found here. And we have other seahorses, pipefish that are all found here and we're able to go out and see in the harbour. Some people wonder why some seahorses, for instance the white ones, are not great swimmers. And the thing is that for the first couple of million years you're around, you're in a fairly gentle seagrass area and you don't need to swim big distances. You need to cling on and stay stable. Yeah, exactly. So they've adapted and found that ecological niche that they can survive in. So these seagrasses and sponges and soft corals that have existed for millions of years as well, and the seahorses were able to utilise them and survive as best as they can. It's only in the last, you know, 100, 200 years since we've been here and really impacting the environment that seahorses have begun to struggle as well. Mitchell Brennan with Sims, that's the Sydney Institute of Marine Science, helping to look after those exquisite little creatures with hotels. He's also at the University of Technology in Sydney. 
Now those fish ladders. This is Michelle Gurk, who loves science but is a realist. How much can you really put in a book for kids? Does this teach you not to be scared of putting real science into a book for young kids? Absolutely. Oh, the children. I used to go, when I didn't have the pictures, trial it in a school, and I thought, trialling a picture book without the pictures, if all else fails, I'll start tap dancing. But I never had to. Children are so open to it, so open. If you're worried about any of this, get in touch with me. By the way, what is a fish ladder? A fish ladder is the equivalent of steps for us on land, and it's to help fish go up and down a steep area that otherwise would have been a barrier. So there, make it interesting and the kids will come running. This is a story for all ages, make no mistake. I'm looking at a book, Gladys and Stripey, Two Little Fish on One Big Adventure, written by Michelle Gurk. Now, I can see pictures of the two little fish and they're in a fairly serene piece of water. What is it, Michelle? That's their home habitat. This would probably be on the outskirts of Melbourne and it would be in a really slow flowing stream and they would be on the side undercover because they're a very small fish, only about four centimetres long, fully grown, and they need to seek refuge from bigger fish and birds and predators. So they're very awake and they're very aware, but they're also switched on to predators. So what do they do all day? They browse and they eat eat what? They eat mozzies and water bugs, whatever they can find in their little stream. So they have a fairly simple life, although they're on the watch out for change. And there's a story I know from Anna Funder, the great writer, Australian writer, and she told a story about a big fish swimming through maybe a pond, a river, who knows? And he comes across two little fish like that, very genial, older fish, saying, lovely day, isn't it? The water's divine. And the little fish don't answer. They just wait for him to go off. And when he's gone off, the two little fish, one says to the other, what's water? Now, that's interesting because the story in your book is about something changes. Now, once the water changes, what does it mean for the little fish? it means they're going to be swept out of their habitat and further down onto a floodplain. And so this is a completely new experience. And what we have to remember too, these are small native freshwater fish. So they've only had their little stream, but they don't grow up with their parents. They have a very short lifespan, one to two years. So from a conservation point of view, that makes it really interesting too. We can't afford to lose them. But I remember a long time ago speaking to children's writer, our wonderful author, Wendy Orr, and I was interviewing her about one of her children's books. And she said, if you want children to have an adventure when you're writing a story, get rid of the parents. So that makes the fish perfect because they have to do the exploring and they have to find out for themselves. And my husband is a fish and river scientist and he used to tell me a lot of these stories. And then one day he took me out on the field work with him because his assistant was sick at the last minute. And so I got to see them in real life and I was so inspired. And then I saw that there was rubbish there and the little stream hadn't been looked after. And I thought, well, people don't know about this. What if they did know? Would it make a difference? 
And going to your story, these little fish suddenly have a dramatic change, which is what? A sudden flood? How does that happen? Not necessarily a big, big flood, not like the Lismore floods. I'm talking perhaps a night of heavy rain. And because of a lot of our trees, like the river red gums, they need to be flooded every five or 10 years. I'm not sure exactly the amount of time. And so it's good for the floodplains because the nutrients come out. So the beauty of these little fish called Galaxiella pusilla, that's their scientific name, is that they can swim in up to two centimetres of waters across the grass. So in one respect, this could be their happy place because predators, bigger predators, won't be there, although birds will probably be able to spot them. So they're flooded to a different place. How do they have to learn to cope with it? Well, my husband said in real life he often found them, say, on a farm and they would be in the ruts where the cars had gone past, where big truck farm vehicles. And when I was first drafting the story, they were there and it was very hard for them to get back. And a lot of them in real life don't. But some of them do. And I sat down with my husband and he showed me how on a particular course where this happens, where they flood and how they can get back. So even though it's a fiction, it's based on real science. And I know you've got every page, wonderful illustrations with the science incorporated in a painless way. It's been out for a little while. How did the children react to it? Well, I've been surprised. I thought I'll just run a few hundred of these and that'll be it. Well, forget that. We did trial it. The first hundred we trialled in local schools and we had a competition because I wanted to see how the teachers were using it. Some would use it just for literacy because the main text is in rhyme. Others were using it for a lot more environmental reasons and to get out and look at their local waterways. And then I like the idea that you not only read, but if you're informed, is there some small thing you can do that gives you agency, really, and makes a contribution? And so one of the schools, the children just started to look at the drains, what happens in the drains. And then they did an art project with beads and they made a stencil and they got permission to put it on the drains in the street. You know, what goes down here affects our native fish. And I'm a very creative person, you know, I'm a writer. So I just love inspiring people to go where they want to go with it. But I've had calls from Biosecurity Queensland because of the way that it introduced pest species. I've had people wetlands in South Australia. I thought this would pitch more to perhaps grade one up to about grade four or five. But the environmental early educators are really into it. They wanted to have it. It's like people are discovering it. Those first few hundred books have gone out and that's really exciting. And then recently I was contacted by the River Detectives Program, which works with 100 schools across Victoria. And then was Nature Book Week and the Wilderness Society wrote up the book and we did a big thing with three councils and down at an actual fish ladder because fish ladder's very key to this story. It's just been amazing. I love it. And it seemed the kids absolutely love it. And one of the things they love about it is that it's real. Even though it's a story, it's based on real fish And if you think about it, where we all live, there has to be fresh water or we wouldn't live there. Why Gladys and Stripey? 
Well, I just woke up one morning and that was their names. And I thought somebody with glad in their name, that's fabulous. I like that. That's positive. And there is a stripe. Yes. The mature males have a stripe. And so what you're hoping for is this book, Gladys and Stripey, Two Little Fish, One Big Adventure in Every Library? Oh, I would love that. Access is so important. Every library in Australia, if we could have it, that would be fantastic. By the way, you're not a scientist yourself, are you? I am not. I'm a storyteller. I'm actually a memoir writer. I wrote two of my own and then after that people kept asking me to write their memoirs. So I've been working with leading business people and this is a complete adventure. This is not just Gladys and Stripey's adventure. This is the Michelle Girk adventure. (laughs) The pictures are divine. Marina Zlatanova. Where did you meet her? Well, this project is such a community project because it was actually the first part of it was funded by the Banyul City Council. So it was an environment grant. And so it was auspiced by our local wetland, Warringal Conservation Society. If you want to see something that a wetland's done over 50 years, have a look at Warringal Conservation. And then I was down the library talking to the librarian and she pulled out Marina's book, a previous book, and I wrote to congratulate her on how beautiful it was. I told her what I was wanting to do. And she said, oh, if you like, I could do a quote or something for you. Oh, I said, don't worry, you'd be wasting your time. You need to be from Banyul. She's in the next street to me. I don't believe it. There was a lot of work, but it really came together. And what she brought to this book is just beautiful because even if a child can't read, they can relate to the pictures. So the other thing is, having lived in Melbourne during the lockdowns, and I actually have a background as an English as additional language teacher and I know a lot of students really suffered because perhaps their parents didn't have the English at home or they didn't have the time. So one of the reasons I wrote in rhyme is it's a predictive text so that makes it much easier for the kids but not only that sometimes in the past I worked with the parents, some of the young mums, and they came from other countries and didn't feel confident reading. So I thought, well, that will help too. So I hope to put out an audio soon. And over summer, I'm going to get one or two tech people to work with me. Can we do something like take the picture of the fish ladder and then go to a real fish ladder? Or we're just going to be extremely creative over the summer and see what we can do. Ways of Reaching Kids and Adults with Real Science. Michelle Girk, her book is Gladys and Stripey, Two Little Fish, One Big Adventure. No doubt about that. The Science Show on RN, where last week we heard at length from Freya and Philip Mulvey about the land itself being a large contributor to climate change. Here's a sample. Freya, how many people have looked at what you're doing and said, 50 to 60% of climate change coming from landscape, that doesn't add up. Have you had arguments? We've had arguments, certainly. But I think overwhelmingly the response has been, it really seems like common sense, that the way that we treat and the presentation of our land affects how we experience heat And as we all know, heat contributes to local and regional climate and thereby climate change and global warming. And you're saying it's an additional 
effect. In other words, the gases, the CO2, the methane, plus the landscape and other effects. Who knows? Water vapour <laughs> is also a greenhouse gas. <laughs> That's Nitrous correct. oxide and so on. Put those all together and what you're saying is take more it, notice of the landscape. That's right. If we can reduce the amount of bad heat that the landscape is emitting for greenhouse gases and carbon to then capture, there'll be less there available for them. So we say that the state of our land is at the moment having a compounding effect on the way that we currently understand climate change, which is almost exclusively about what carbon and greenhouse gases do with that heat. But there is that first step of the state of our land and landscapes. Freya Mulvey with Father Philip, authors of Groundbreaking. Now, it so happens that presentations asserting that soil, carbon and landscape are far more significant than greenhouse gases have been dismissed by earth scientists such as professors at the University of Melbourne as being orchestrated to minimise the role of fossil fuels, a political construction, in other words. Another place where we are encouraged to exercise critical doubt is in the standoff we broadcast a month ago about the COVID virus origins in Wuhan, wet market versus lab leak. As Dr Ella Finkel reported for us, the version favoured now by scientists is the former, wild animals infected leading to us. But one viral researcher we've got to know well over the past three years is Dr Raina McIntyre, who's more convinced than ever that it's a lab leak, and she stands by her case, outlined in her book Dark Winter. So the question in this program is our choice between arguing that doubt or uncertainty is a weakness in science, or as a basis for more lively inquiry. It's all in Tim Palmer's new book, The Primacy of Doubt. He's a Royal Society Research Professor at Oxford. It basically defines science. Uncertainty defines science. If somebody said to you, why isn't astrology science? You know, you go to an astrologer, they make a prediction, you'll meet a tall, dark stranger. Why isn't it science? Well, one reason why you can immediately say it's not science is because you never hear error bars put on the prediction. You will never hear how certain or uncertain they are about the prediction. So it's absolutely fundamental to the scientific method that we're able to at least try to estimate the uncertainty, the reliability of our statements and our predictions. And it's what makes just listening to one expert, if he or she seems too confident about what they're saying, to be perhaps sceptical and say, I wonder if they're glossing over some important uncertainties. Indeed. In fact, the only slight worry I had about that title is doubting something is in some ways fashionable, especially if you're criticising a few of the chapters you've got, such as climate science and so on. Yes, but we need more detail. We're not convinced. And the president of the Australian Academy of Science, Professor Jagadish, has said many of these attitudes undermine the science. In other words, if people are continuing with too much doubt, they're never confident to take 95% of what happens to be accepted as knowledge, secure knowledge, then the ground under our feet begins to shake, doesn't it? Well, I think there's another point to make when one starts talking about political hot potatoes like climate change, which is that if one is talking about it from a scientific point of view, you have to try to cast aside, let's say, your political prejudices. You may come at climate change 
with a sceptical hat on because you don't like the idea of regulation. You don't like the idea of the implied economy that may evolve. Or world government. Or whatever it is, yeah. Or you may think, I want to be free to drive my four-wheeled petrol-driven car. I don't want people to tell me otherwise. So it's important to leave that to one side and say there's an issue here which has a very strong scientific component, which is the question, are our carbon emissions changing climate in a substantial way and for the worse? Now, that kind of question can be addressed irrespective of one's political viewpoint. So it's very easy to say, oh, well, I'm sceptical, not particularly because of the science, but because I just don't like the idea of of regulation. And that's an important point. When one is assessing how certain or uncertain one is about something, to do it in a completely dispassionate and sort of apolitical way. Now, to the science that you write about so compellingly and why we're here actually having a conversation about it, your beautiful book. Where did the butterfly effect come from and why is it so significant in the start of your book? There are two aspects to that. I'm a physicist with, I suppose you could say, strong mathematical training. And the thing about the butterfly effect from a mathematical point of view is that it leads to a kind of type of geometric mathematics that is just phenomenally beautiful and actually underpins a lot of the major mathematical theorems of the 20th century. I I talk a bit about Gödel's incompleteness theorem and Andrew Wiles's very celebrated proof of Fermat's last theorem. And the type of mathematics that goes into this actually has links back to the, what I would call the, the chaotic geometry of the butterfly effect. Just to remind, the butterfly effect suggests that the butterfly outside our window here, overlooking wonderful part of Balliol College campus, this butterfly might have a tiny effect on the air system in the quad, and that's going to change the climate on the other side of the planet, which seems preposterous. Yes, I mean, the butterfly effect was made famous, and I think probably in more than one movie, but one that comes to mind is one, I think, where Gwyneth Paltrow just doesn't catch a tube train in London because the doors were just shutting. And the movie is about the two kind of parallel universes that evolve from her catching the train and not catching the train. And it kind of illustrates, in a way, how a small uncertainty can grow into a large uncertainty. But the thing that I focus on in the book is the fact that sometimes butterflies actually don't matter that much, but sometimes they do. And we see this not only in weather, you know, sometimes weather can be predictable a week or 10 days, two weeks in advance. Sometimes it's actually only predictable a couple of days because the butterflies have flapped. But we see that in other systems like the economy. We have financial crashes which somehow come out of the blue. We have epidemics, global pandemics, which somehow come out of the blue. Out of one bat in a market. Yeah, exactly. But bats are always in markets. So the question is, can you predict when the situation is arising where a single bat or a single butterfly or some kind of dodgy financial transaction can trigger a global meltdown in whatever system. And that's what, in a way, the book's about. It's about trying to understand this kind of idea of intermittent unpredictability. 
And a couple of names, uh, of course, Ed Lorenz is one of the people you quote who has this idea about geometry, fractals, those wonderful fractals. You've seen them probably on a screen where the little squares grow and grow and grow until this pattern just continues. But there's another person involved in what is often called chaos, and chaos implies that everything's unpredictable and all over the place. But a mutual friend, an Australian actually, Bob May, of this campus in Oxford, now departed. He was one of the most extraordinary, brilliant purveyors of the idea of chaos. So how does chaos fit into it all? By the way, Bob May is somebody I got to know very well when chaos first hit the TV screens back in the early 90s, I think, and he and I appeared on a number of documentaries about chaos. I have to say, I usually had a small cameo role and he had a much bigger explanatory role and I realised his enormous talent for explaining complicated ideas. He was a superstar, an Australian, and he became chief scientist. He became chief scientist, became the president of the Royal Society and he won a lot of important medals. But so what is chaos? I mean, chaos really is the idea that small, uncertain effects characterised by the flap of a butterfly's wings can change the weather. They could potentially cause the Earth to be ejected from the solar system. This is an interesting potential phenomenon I discuss in the book. The idea applies to, I would say, probably most of the phenomena that we look at in the world, from engineering systems, biological systems, economic systems, mathematical systems. But I want to make the point, this is again stress in the book, that what interests me about this is not this sort of idea that, oh well, chaos makes everything unpredictable. It's not as simple as that. Chaos sometimes makes things very unpredictable very quickly, but equally sometimes the butterflies actually have no effect and you can have predictable behaviour for long periods of time. Economists are very good at predicting the inflation and the GDP when nothing much is happening, and they can do that a year, two years ahead. But when you get into a very unpredictable, chaotic situation, then the predictions break down very, very quickly. And it's trying to understand that. And how can we actually predict when we're entering a very unpredictable, chaotic situation? That's the thing which fascinates me, because this is where the theory and practical science that can affect people's daily lives join up. One of the main chapters, well, more than one chapter, actually, is about climate science, which you mentioned in the beginning. If we're going to make sense of all this enormous information, because climate science is practically every aspect of science you could mention. (laughs) But you've got the science trying to make sense of it, to extract from the data what's going on, and also the question of policy. So how do both fields make sense of that kind of almost chaotic stack of information and manifestation? Yes, that's absolutely right. And What I did in the book, very deliberately, is write two separate chapters, one focusing entirely on the science and one focusing on, okay, well, what do we do about it? And what do we do about the science does involve value judgments and, you know, socioeconomic judgments and things, which is bringing in extra stuff over and above the science. So in the chapter on the science, I kind of talk about what is the basic greenhouse effect. Why does carbon dioxide make the atmosphere warm? Why is the surface of the earth warmer, say, than the surface of the moon? Because they're both the same distance from the sun, so what's going on there? So I discuss that. 
And then I discuss what the implications are scientifically if we add extra carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, which is what we're doing. And I discuss some of the uncertainties in that. And the uncertainties come from knock-on effects. And the biggest uncertainty is clouds. How are clouds going to respond to our increased emissions of carbon dioxide? So scientifically, you end up with probability distributions for different levels of climate change. Now, in a way, this is no different to your weather forecast app, where you look at, you know, is it going to rain tomorrow? And it'll tell you, okay, there's a 60% chance of rain. So you initially you say, well, God, what am I going to do with 60% chance of rain? This is hopeless. But the point is, consider, for example, you're going to go out for a walk. There's a 60% chance of rain. Do you bring your rainproof gear? If you bring it, you won't get wet. But on the other hand, it weighs something. You have to stick it in a backpack. It's a nuisance. It's going to weigh you down a bit. And if it doesn't rain, you know, you just expended all that extra energy. So you've got a decision to make. And a meteorologist is not going to tell you that. It's your decision. Carrying that extra weight is worth it. and not getting drenched. Climate change is basically no different to that. You have a probability of, you know, a level of climate change that we'd all would say is quite catastrophic. I mean, I use the four degree global warming as a level where pretty much everybody would agree that would be pretty damn catastrophic to the world. It would be existential for many people living in the tropics and subtropics. So there's a certain probability that that might happen. It's not definite, it's not zero, it's not 100%, something like that. Question is, is it worth taking action to stop that happening? And the second chapter is about how would you go about even making that decision? And obviously you have to kind of evaluate what the damages would be, what the costs would be of mitigating that, what is the cost of going to a low carbon, zero carbon economy? And is it worth it? And me as a scientist, you know, wearing my Oxford mortarboard or something like that, I would say that's not for me to tell you. I mean, that's for you to judge. If you ask me as Joe Bloggs in the pub on a Friday evening, I would actually say it's a no-brainer. But then I'm adding value judgments, which I don't use when I write my scientific paper. Let me just interrupt and say, look, one clear recommendation you do make in that chapter, the first chapter, is that we should have a CERN-type organisation, you know, the famous accelerator in Switzerland on the border of Italy and uh, the other countries, which cost an awful lot of money, where they discover the Higgs boson and so on, where that accelerator is. You want an outfit like that to give us more information about the physics and maths of climate change. I do feel that very strongly because the physics and the maths is complex. I mean, climate change is simple at one level. If you ask me the question, you know, are our carbon emissions warming the planet? The answer is yes. And I can tell you on the back of an envelope why that is the case. And I tell you why in the book. But if you ask me the question, what does it mean for people living in Sydney or, or Perth or London or San Francisco in terms not only of temperature, but rainfall, storminess, drought you know, all these extra kind of things which are important when one is looking at how to, for example, how to adapt to climate change, then the problem becomes really, really complicated. And my own view is that we're not going to actually really tackle this adequately unless we pool resources internationally and do something like a high energy physicist did in building CERN. But this case would be building an international centre for doing ultra, ultra high resolution global climate modelling. I believe that very strongly. And In I, other words, you wouldn't need a gigantic building and a gigantic sets of 100,000 bits of apparatus. We have the time to do something quickly 
because it's modelling and you just need a place where computers and people could be. Yeah, and in fact, compared with the budget of CERN, it would have cost just a fraction of that. But there's a group of us in the world that are trying to advance this and we're trying to put it on the COP agendas and things like that. And I hope countries like Australia will ultimately become partners and we'll, we'll get this going. Yeah. But you're implying throughout our conversation that doubt is healthy and we shouldn't be frightened of it. Well, I, it's quite the opposite. If you say something without expressing any doubt or uncertainty, then you should be deeply sceptical about it. Funnily enough, a couple of weeks ago, we had a portrait about Sir Jack Eccles, who got an international reputation that everyone laughed at. You know, happily, he is a guy who disproved his own theory. <laughs> Well, yes, that's right. One should be sceptical of one's own theories, I suppose, is the answer. Of course, it's very difficult sometimes to do that. But no, I mean, this, as I say, this is one of the defining features of the scientific method, that it attempts to tackle, where possible, the nature of uncertainties and try to quantify the nature of uncertainties and essentially treat uncertainty as important a variable as anything else, if you're predicting the way... But weather. not a weapon. Science isn't a weapon. Science is a tool to be used for the benefit of humanity. And if we're to use it wisely, you see, that's the point. I mean, if we're talking about, let's say we're talking about climate adaptation and we just took one climate model and spent billions, maybe trillions of dollars building infrastructure on the basis of that one single model, you could end up completely wasting your money. You'd spend money on building flood defences and things when actually the main risk was from droughts and heat waves. So it's critical if you're spending lots of money to know how confident can you be in these predictions. I mean, in some ways, it's not a desperately surprising thing to say. I'm just making the point that hmm. that is the basis of science, really. And what you describe is a healthy way of doing science, and it's not the kind of despair, I don't know whether you remember, that Captain Fitzroy was on Darwin's boat, you know, he was in charge of it. And when he'd finished being in the Navy, he became a weather forecaster. But he found pioneering weather forecasting and doing local predictions so stressful, he killed himself. Yeah, Fitzroy, one of the great things he did was set up an ability to send weather observations back to a central location via the developing telegraphy technology. And it's knowing the observations is a really important part of weather forecasting. But he didn't have the models. He couldn't ingest these observations into computer models. He would try to guess almost, given the observations, what the weather was going to be. So he got it half right. And he did do important, very important pioneering work. But because he didn't have the models, the forecast was sometimes good, sometimes bad. And when they went bad, he was pilloried by the press and by his colleagues and even in, by MPs in Parliament. And that eventually got to him. But, you know, he's remembered now, I think, as actually somebody that really did pioneer an important part of weather prediction, which is the ability to synthesise observations from different parts of the country into a single holistic central part. We have a mutual friend who says that he was a great scientist, greater than many. My final question to you, going right back to the beginning, is when you had an amazing insight, I think you weren't far off having finished your PhD, and you were thinking about Einstein, you were thinking about ways in which he is poo-pooing some of the quantum stuff and saying it's a bit too random and weird and magical in the pejorative sense. But what insight did you have and what difference did it make that day? Yes, well, 
I actually started my research career studying cosmology and Einstein's theory of general relativity and this continuing problem of how to marry Einstein's theory of relativity with Schrodinger and Heisenberg's quantum mechanics. And I sort of thought I'd left that behind. I just sort of made a, it was a difficult decision to change fields into climate type work, but I, I kind of thought I'd made that decision. But having discovered this geometry of chaos that I talked about, the fractal geometry that, that you mentioned, it made me realize that here was a kind of mathematical structure that could, despite what most conventional quantum scientists would say, here is a way to actually incorporate Einstein's ideas about determinism and locality. So determinism means God does not play dice, God does not sort of introduce randomness into the world, contradicting the idea of spooky, what he calls spooky action at a distance. In other words, something I do here, if I wave my hands here, it shouldn't affect instantaneously something going on in darkest corners of the Andromeda galaxy. That Entanglement. Point. Entanglement, yes, that's right. So the realisation was that fractal geometry actually provides a way of going back to what Einstein said and realising that actually there is a way to understand quantum mechanics within the sort of deterministic local framework that Einstein believed was the case. So I personally believe Einstein was right, and I'm willing to say on the record that I think in 20 or 30 years he'll be acknowledged as being right. But at the moment, that's not the way most quantum physicists look at it. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Tim Palmer, who's a Royal Society professor at Oxford, and his book is The Primacy of Doubt. And as they say these days in answer to the two conundra about COVID and climate, don't weaponize your doubts. If you're worried about flood or fire, you insure your house. And yes, it's expensive to do so, but many aspects of life are uncertain. So we deal with them take precautions. We don't pillory the scientific messenger. Safo Neal knows about this. She's been immersed with people in the UK, seeing how they, and perhaps we, are dealing with it through pictures. What were you doing in Melbourne way back? I was working as a postdoc, so that's my first job out of PhD with Professor John Barnett in the geography department at University of Melbourne. What was your study? I was studying social and cultural dimensions of climate change. Some of it involved doing fieldwork in places like Lake Entrance and just generally being based in Melbourne and having a wonderful time and still feeling very homesick for those Australian days. <laughs> and what was your impression of public reaction to the clear onset of climate change? Interesting question. So I think we start to say changes in about the mid-2000s in Australia and the UK in public opinion about climate change. Climate change is an issue. It really starts to be picked up in public polls and so on. But I wouldn't say there's ever been a sort of tipping point where there's been a change. But we do now see large-scale public support across most countries for climate action. And that's very stable over time, actually. And so what do you do, say, round the town here in Exeter to show people images of what happens yeah, so the event we're doing for the British Science Festival is all about trying to connect people's local, everyday lives to climate change. Because climate change often feels like something that happens somewhere else to somebody else and not something that happens in your backyard. But we all know we're going to have to adapt our lives, change how we live, deal with things like flooding, increasing heat waves and so on, and drought, and also reduce the greenhouse gas emissions. So how we drive, how we heat our homes and so on. So the workshop that we're running is all about people taking photos to try and connect up what might seem at first sight quite disparate sort of issues, everyday lives with climate change. Well, not a lot of people in Australia, as you probably know, have still, years later, faced the fact that their homes went 
and the forests came down, billions of animals and plants died, and the shock has been overwhelming. Trying to cope with no home, or half a home, (laughs) nothing was as severe as that here in Britain. So there have been events that have really challenged people in Britain, but certainly Australia really is at the forefront, I would agree, with those extreme climate impacts and the floods in Queensland. You mentioned just there, but you could just add to the kind of list of extreme events that Australians are grappling with. But I think wherever you are in the world, you're seeing often the signature. Scientists have proven the fingerprint of climate change on many of the extreme weather events that we're seeing day to day. Are those the sort of pictures you take around town or not? Yeah, so there's a mix. What we're really interested in is not necessarily the pictures themselves that people take, although they're always interesting to look at and analyse and understand, but it's about the stories that go behind those and the way that they kind of link from people's everyday experience to what they really value and care about and are interested in. That We're sort of using photography as that link, if you like. And what impressions? What do they say? Well, things that people care about. I'm always surprised. People will talk about things like polar bears and say how much they care. And also about tiny little speck-like insects also in their backyard. You know, so the scale is vast and across all different sorts of living species, landscapes, built environments, lots of different things. People are unpredictable, but it really is the storylines that we're interested in. Why are people caring about those things and how can we use it to sort of spark a conversation on climate change? It's quite interesting, isn't it? Because in Australia, that would be recognised as an indigenous phrase, talking about country, the fine detail, what you know about the place, the fine detail, as you said, the insects and the tiny plants, as well as the bigger picture. Yeah, for sure. And I think we've all got a lot to learn from indigenous perspectives. And it's really good to see some of that now coming through. I know the University of Melbourne uh, has various initiatives around indigenous scholarships and so on. So much that we can do in our institutions like the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and other fora, you know, to learn from those indigenous perspectives of connection to land and to country. Is it bringing people together in certain small places, towns, who knows, and parts of the country? to do things together that you know about? Yeah, so climate change can be a kind of uniting factor, people realising that the things that they value are at risk. It might be something like a coral reef, it might be something like a school playground and how it's threatened by flooding. Those things can be a kind of coalescing events, I think, for communities to come together. Despite what their political values might be, they actually have significant shared values. It can be the start of many a conversation. You mean Conservatives can talk to Labour? (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah, I think there's much that's been made in the Anglosphere, so the US, UK, Australia, about the divisions, the things that separate us in climate politics. And for sure, we're not denying that those things exist, but I think often those voices, that minority, becomes amplified. They're often powerful voices in the society, for example, but they don't actually represent the majority of people. There's a lot of common ground that can be found on climate action, climate solutions. But also, to make things happen, happen in councils and in government, you need to have the people who used to be there in the civil service, who knew how to do things, solve problems, use their experience to get on with. Many of those have been fired both in Australia and in Britain. So you've got farces going on at the moment, for instance, with that sort of bubbly concrete (laughs) causing any number of schools and hospitals and whatever to be closed down. And (laughs) you wonder when the corner's going to be turned for the people who can actually make things happen. Uh, Yes, I'm not sure what I can do, but uh, to agree with that, my nephew is out of school on this very day because his school is closed at the moment because of that bubbly concrete. So, yeah, these are important jobs that need sustained investment and support to carry out sometimes the mundane jobs that really keep society ticking over. 
and looking to the future. Final question, really, as a researcher, as a person who's an academic, what's your line of investigation taking these days? So I'm really interested in the role of images, particularly in how people engage with climate change. And by that, I mean how they live with it, how they understand it, what they value, how it might affect what action they might take from everyday decisions like how they get to work, how they get to school, what food they eat, to you know bigger decisions like how they might vote. So yeah, we're interested in how images shape people's values and behaviours. That's really our focus. As if it's surprising you, in other words, taking that almost lateral way of looking instead of doing a spreadsheet with questionnaires and so on looking at that kind of visual way of finding out what they're thinking and doing yeah well as academics particularly we tend to be really focused on the written word and forget that the images are really they're ubiquitous they're everywhere they surround us and they're really powerful if there's big news like you know when the twin towers fell that wasn't covered in words there were pictures and we know that images can be really powerful in connecting with people about an issue so i think yeah we need to consider the role of the visual even as we speak in the radio show Saffron O'Neill is Professor of Climate and Society at the University of Exeter. And I noticed, by the way, that former Prime Minister Tony Abbott was quoted in the Sydney Morning Herald a few days ago saying, the climate change cult will be defeated one day. Uncertainty. But we finish today with a superstar of STEM, Anita Provoca fox from the University of Queensland. Getting rid of the waste, how has it improved? It's occurring very slowly um, certainly we've seen many positive impacts in other sectors so plastics food fashion a lot of media interest and attention on that but the one thing we tend to not focus on is mine waste materials billions and billions of tons of mine waste sits out there reacting oxidizing causing all sorts of environmental issues for communities i think over the past five years or decade if i'm going to be generous. There's been a lot more interest in actually tackling that problem, probably driven by the circular economy. So I think now companies and governments are realising that contained in these waste piles is the opportunity to recover metals and minerals that we need for the energy transition. So that's certainly been a big sort of trigger for change and for governments and companies to actually take it a bit more seriously in terms of managing this waste crisis that we have, quite frankly. Yeah. Yeah. Crisis. Where is it worst? Well, where do people not go? Certainly in Australia, there are huge examples of bad waste issues. So West Coast of Tasmania is a classic. So if you drive out towards Queenstown on the West Coast there, it's probably a globally famous example of acid and metalliferous drainage. So the rivers are orange. It's aquatically dead for 35 kilometres out to, you know, Macquarie Harbour. And that's obviously in the Tarkine. The Tarkine is where there's a fantastic, wonderful forest. That's correct, yeah. So, you know, nestled in the Tarkine, there are a few sort of different mining operations there. So the Mount Lyre one's obviously a historic one. So a lot of those problems were caused, you know, before legislation instructed that we don't manage our waste materials like that. But certainly, you know, in Queensland, Mount Morgan's a bad example. Obviously, we've all been talking about Glencore and the closure there. And they've obviously got a 27 kilometre footprint tailings dam which is obviously going to need some remediation so there's a lot of examples in Australia that need attention but certainly if we look overseas Bingham Canyon I mean that's a scar you can see from space all that rock they've moved just piled up around kind of the open cut and there's you know there's problems with arsenic contamination there. I know but you see the thing is that your job 
you're working on both sides. How do you do that balance yourself? You've got the environmental one and the business one. That's a tricky one. I suppose it's an interesting thing. So a lot of the critical metals that we want to recover are actually contained in some of the most reactive minerals that cause the environmental damage. So in some ways, like if we want to recover cobalt, for example, and obviously we need that for the battery technologies and the energy transition, it's contained in pyrite. And pyrite's actually the mineral that reacts with air sort of as it oxidizes and generates um, the acid. So I think it's for us to communicate that by recovering this and developing this business case, we're actually going to de-risk environmentally. It makes for a more powerful message. And it's one that is resonating with technology companies, governments, and well, I guess communities too. We're talking to you about students coming to geology. You need them obviously to solve the problem we've been talking about. Do students know there are possibilities of, for doing good in geology as well? I have had no problem in attracting students because they're exactly on board with this message. They know that the different skills they have can be exactly applied here to tackle one of the next wicked problem that we've got in society. So, yeah, it's it's been great to see new geoscientists want to apply their skills in this particular area. And for me, it's had a lot of grey hair because... I've got a lot more theses to mark, so there's a lot of hair dye on this right I now. I can't see any yeah, grey well, hair. that's a good dye job, and it was a packed job, so I'm quite pleased with the result then. Yeah, so it's, I don't see that students are going to be dropping off my radar anytime soon. Yeah. Thank you. No worries. Well, actually, some worries. Associate Professor Anita Pravarka-Fox from the University of Queensland, a superstar of STEM, and we'll have more of those next week, along with a mention of our top world-leading scientists in Australia. No uncertainties there, and maybe a few Bragg Prize winners for science writing. The overall Bragg winner, Nikki Phillips, once was producer on this programme, and now she's with the journal Nature. Nowadays, the science show is produced by David Fisher. And if you're in Sydney, do go to Darling Harbour, to the National Maritime Museum and see the brand new exhibition of ocean photography from all over the world. It is stunning. I'm Robin Williams. to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.